Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. us in our weakness, for we do not know how we should pray. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes on behalf of the saints according to God's will. And we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that his Son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Good morning again, everybody. Uh, as I said earlier, my name is Nick. I am the student pastor here, and I'm so blessed and, and excited to be able to get to preach and, and teach with you guys this morning. Uh, I had this, I had like several jokes written for, because I thought I was going to be the voice on the scripture today, because I, if you don't know that, <laughs> I have been a few times. Uh, so I'm just going to have to forget all that. Andrea, that was beautiful. You did a great job. But you also ruined a little bit of my sermon. Um, <laughs> what if I just start a sermon without jokes? Like last time when I did the Palm Sunday sermon, I don't know if you guys remember that. It was probably one of the most traumatic 30 seconds of my life because I had written out all these obvious, albeit obvious jokes about Palm Sunday. But Charlie 100% stole my laughs when he came up and did the welcome and he made jokes about kids hitting each other with palm branches I was sitting there looking at him like, what are you doing? That's mine. So I came up and tried it anyway, and you guys gave me one of these. It was a tough moment for me. I almost didn't make it back up here today because of it. So thank you for pretending to laugh at whatever I've been saying. Um, last week, last week, Steve Hickson, if you weren't here, Steve Hickson, our former pastor, came and he preached a beautiful, wonderful sermon um, on the passage right before this. And... He said something that I had to stop and, and go back and listen to again, because, and, it, and it was probably something that you guys heard or, and maybe forgot, but for some reason for me, it really hit in that moment. He said that Romans 8, which is the passage that we've been going through, is kind of like the jewel of the scriptures. He said that Romans 8 is kind of like the jewel of the scriptures. And I started thinking about that because the passage that I'm doing today, as you just heard, is a beautiful passage. But it is also fraught with peril. Uh, there are words in there like predestination, uh, called, justified, glorified, foreknew. These are words that theologians and regular non-theologians like non have argued about for centuries. If you don't know that, your life is probably better off. But 
it's a, it's a difficult passage. It's not full of, so this, don't go do this, which is a preacher's dream, right? We love a passage that says, think about this, and then all of a sudden, do these things. That's why I and most people love John 3.16, because it says, if you believe, then you get eternal life. All you got to do is this, and then you get this. Those are great passages to preach from, because the application is sort of woven in to the passage, right? Not so much in this one. It's really more about a reframing of how we think. And Paul does not provide a, so now go and do this at the end of this passage. So when Steve said, this is kind of like the jewel of the scriptures, that clicked really well with me because I thought about what a jewel is, right? A jewel is very precious. It doesn't really have a lot of practical application to it. And people love to fight over them. And so I thought about my passages, the 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 epitome of a jewel, because this passage is precious and beautiful, not super practical, and people love to fight over it. It's very similar to a jewel. So here's what I want to do. I know we just heard this passage. I want to say it again. I want to read it again and break it down as we go, all right? Break this thing down and really try to figure out what our good friend Paul is trying to say to us. So let's start with 26. So I grew up in the Pentecostal church, Assemblies of God. That's where I grew up. Uh, and it was a weird experience. It was a weird experience. I saw a lot of crazy things. Um, I'll give you one. One of my favorites was on a Sunday night church. You, anyone remember Sunday night church? Was that a thing for y'all? For me, it was a huge deal. All right? It was a huge deal. Sunday night church was where the pastor used all the stuff he couldn't figure out how to fit into his Sunday morning sermon. So a lot of times it was a lot longer and harder to not fall asleep to, especially because it was nighttime. But there was this one Sunday night service where this one dude that was there was so amped up on the Holy Spirit that he decided he needed to run laps around the church during the service. Now, on its face, in my experience, that wasn't that weird. I'd seen weirder things which that should inform you a little bit about what my experience was like, that a man running laps around the church wasn't the weirdest thing I saw that day. But the, ser- the pastor was getting visibly annoyed, and so to try and stop him, he, every time he came across, he would say, now run faster. And then that didn't work. He just kept going. And then he said, all right, now I want you to yell, praise God, every five seconds. And he just kept doing it, and the dude would not stop. This has nothing to do with what I'm preaching about. I didn't plan to say this. It's just coming out of me. I wanted, it's been a burden on my heart. I had to share it. Thank you for listening to me. But so this passage at the very beginning, it says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we did not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. One of the major tenets of the Pentecostal Church Assemblies of God, especially when I was growing up, is the only true evidence that you've received the Holy Spirit in your life is that you can speak in tongues. That's the only way to know. And I was taught this from a very young age. So guess what I constantly begged God for? girls to like me. But the second thing was to speak in tongues. That's what I wanted. I wanted it so bad because it seemed like the only way to really even be saved was to speak in tongues. And I refused to fake it. Refused. Wouldn't fake it. It had to just pour out of me, right? And so when I was, this was a verse that was taught to us many times to prove that the only way to, be, to know for sure that you have the Holy Spirit within you is if you can speak in tongues. That phrase, groanings too deep for words, was spoken to me many times. 
But I got to be honest with you, as I read it now, and even as I've read it in the past, that doesn't really click for me. I, I don't think this is talking about speaking in tongues at all. I don't know if you've ever heard it, but they're using words. They're speaking in words, right? And in this particular passage, it says too deep for words. So I immediately have to, I wish I could go back to 13-year-old Nick and say, Nick, calm down. It's not talking about that. This is not talking about speaking in tongues. This is groanings too deep for words, utterances that come from the Holy Spirit that we cannot hear or understand even if we could. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And he does this, and I love this, because the Spirit is interceding for us where we don't know what to say. Anybody ever felt that, I just don't know what to pray right now kind of moment? You're going through something so complicated, or you just can't remember even what it was you wanted to pray for, and you're, I I just don't know. This is so comforting because God is saying, don't worry about it. I got your back. The Holy Spirit inside you will pray those things that you don't know what to pray. We'll pray for you where you can't remember what to say. We'll pray for you when you don't even know what to pray for. It's, it's a beautiful, comforting passage. And a lot of this is just filled with comfort. All of these verses are filled with comfort. And he does this, the Holy Spirit does this because of his intimate connection with the Father, right? They make sure to say that in 27, that there's an intimate connection that exists between the Spirit and the Father. And because the Spirit dwells within us, we get to partake and share in that beautiful intimacy. And that's a wonderful thing. And it's comforting. If you don't know how to talk to God, don't worry about it. He will fill in the gaps. Now, I want to be clear. This is not taking us off the hook for prayer, right? This is not me saying, all right, God, you know what to pray for. I'm out. That's, that's not what he's saying. It's not what he's saying. Just like when Paul says later, he says, should I sin all the more to increase my grace? No, that's ridiculous. Pray. Grow in your prayer. Grow in your understanding of how to pray. Grow in your understanding of when and where you should pray and for what and for why. But still, because you are a person and God is God, you will make mistakes. You will miss things. You will not pray for things that need prayer. And the Holy Spirit will intercede for you on your behalf because he loves us so much. He doesn't want us to miss anything. I love this part so much. Sorry, I'm going to go through some some emotions throughout this this sermon. So just, you know, it's going to be okay. Charlie's probably never cried while preaching. I tend to do it often, so if I do it, just, I apologize. Prayer is not just a list of requests for God's help, right? We all understand this. Prayer is not just me saying, I need this, I need this, I need this, I'd like for this to stop happening, blah, 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 blah. That's, that's not what prayer is. Prayer is an attempt to make a connection with God and communicate with him and build our relationship. And yes, it is about asking God for things, but it's also just about spending time and sharing a moment with him. And the Spirit in interceding for us is trying to bring us into a whole other way of being, trying to reshape our lives into something better, trying to give us an opportunity at a more interesting, more, more complicated yet love-filled life. Have you ever seen The Matrix, one of the best movies ever? Not one of the best trilogies. Part two and three are completely unwatchable, so don't bother. But the first one has this scene where one of the main characters holds out his two hands, right? And he's got a pill in one and a pill in the other. And one's red and one's blue. And he's telling this guy, look, you take this pill, everything will be fine. You just continue living your life. Go back to normal. Do what you've been doing. Go to work. Whatever. 
take this one, everything will change. You will see things completely differently. Things will be revealed to you that otherwise would never be revealed to you. You will live in a whole other plane of existence. And I think that's what the Holy Spirit is leading us to, a whole other plane of existence. We'll get into that a little more as we move down. Verse 28. This is another one of those dangerous passages that if you don't read it just right, it kind of changes everything. Verse 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So right off the bat, this does not say, And we know that for everyone on the planet, all things work together for good. Do I wish that's what it said? Sure, that'd be great. That'd be really nice. But that's not what it says. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. That's a different passage. And it's yet still very comforting. This whole passage, this whole book is really written for the believer, right? For those who have decided that they love God. And so what he's saying to you is, you're still going to screw up. You're going to make bad choices. Bad things are going to happen to you. You're going to choose selfish options. And what God's going to do is work them out for your benefit. He's not going to change them. He's not even really going to fix them. You might still have to go through consequences for your actions, but he's going to work it out so that what you've done or what's been done to you will eventually lead to your benefit. There is, in my opinion, no better example of this than the story of Joseph. Joseph was one of the sons of Jacob, who was the grandson of Abraham, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob would later later be renamed Israel, and his sons were the 12 tribes of Israel. Very important people. Except one day, Joseph decided that he needed to share with his brothers that he had a beautiful dream about how he was going to rule over them. Joseph being the youngest, this wasn't very acceptable to them. And then he did it again. Did it twice. And I guess his brothers just couldn't handle it. So they threw him in a hole. As brothers do, I guess. It's a good thing I never had big brothers because I would have been thrown in several holes as I often revealed to people how elevated I was above them. Thank you. Um, They throw him in a hole. And then they realize, maybe that was a little harsh. Let's just sell him to some people and he'll become a slave. And then we never have to deal with him again. Then they lie to his dad and say that he was killed, right? Good move by the future leaders and namesakes of the tribes of Israel, right? Absolutely terrible choice. Shouldn't do that. No good, very bad, don't do it. They did it anyway. So Joseph goes into slavery. And you would think that if I was reading this and I used the logic of what usually happens on earth, that ruins everything. That right there should have ruined God's plan. The youngest son of the father of Israel is gone, and it's because of the older sons. They did a terrible thing for which they should be punished, and the father's heart was broken, and he could barely do things. That's where you think this story should go, but it doesn't. Joseph is sold into slavery, and magically he becomes the lord of the house. Some random slave that this guy bought becomes in charge of his house. And then something else stupid happens, right? Another reason where you should just think, well, that's the end of that. 
He gets thrown into jail because the man's wife accused him of coming on to her, when in reality it was the opposite. He's thrown into jail for a crime he didn't commit. Terrible things keep happening to this dude. And you, kept, you keep thinking that if, if you don't know God, you might read the story and be like, well, that's it. There, that's it. Can't do anything about that. He's in jail in Egypt. I don't know if any of you have ever been to jail in ancient Egypt, but it probably isn't great. It's probably not something that you think, oh, well, I'll get out of this. Easy. This place is, is full of justice. No, you go into jail in Egypt and you're like, well, that's it. I'm done. But he becomes like in charge of the jail. Where has this ever happened before? Or again, tell him, where's the HBO special about prison where one of the prisoners becomes like basically the warden? Those don't exist. This is ridiculous. This isn't normal. And Joseph becomes in charge of jail. And then he makes friends with a couple guys who end up going back up there and telling the Pharaoh who's had a weird dream that this guy knows how to interpret it. So he's lifted up out of jail into the king's court and within a matter of days is put in charge of the entire nation of Egypt. God makes all things work together for good for those who love him. And here's the, it's not just about Joseph, right? Because of this, Israel itself is given a place to grow is given a place to live in safety and security for centuries. If Israel had stayed in Canaan, they would have probably been overrun by the nations coming in there and warring and fighting, and there's no way they could have multiplied and grown the way that they did, living in the safety and security of Egypt. This was God's plan the whole time. This was God's plan. To take this terrible choice made by these men, and turn it into the salvation of millions. And eventually, our own salvation. I mean, think about it. Joseph isn't thrown into that hole. There's no Israel. There's no David. There's no Joseph and Mary. There's, do you see the ripple effect? God works together all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Joseph talked about it like this in Genesis 50. He said, as for you, talking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is also comforting word to us, to me. Whatever is done to us or by us that is meant for evil, God will weave it together for the good of us and his purpose. But what is his purpose? Because he, he says this here. He says, weaves it together according to his purpose. 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What a proud dad. This is just proud dad moment right here. He's looking at his son and saying, everybody should be like this guy. Everybody on the planet. Your purpose is to be like my son. I go to a lot of kids' birthday parties, not because I'm weird, but because I have kids. Um, and I was at my son's birthday party yesterday. Coolest birthday party ever, by the way. We planned almost nothing and just said, let's just go to the woods. And like 50 people showed up and we had a great time. Kind of puts to shame all those birthday parties that we spend way too much money on and plan minute by minute and like six people show up. I don't know. Something to think about, babe. 
Um, trying to keep a savings account here. Uh, what am I talking about? Proud dad. So I go to a lot of birthday parties, and there are times, not a lot, because my kids are also crazy, but sometimes I will look at kids doing ridiculous things, like hitting each other with sticks, and I'll be like, can't you just be like my kid? He's so sweet. Just be like my kid. Now, I don't say this to them often, but I do think it. I do think it. And so in that way, I am like God. Oh, no, I'm sorry. It's a different thing. Um, I'm a youth pastor. I make terrible jokes. And a dad. It's like you combine the two things, youth pastor plus dad jokes, and it's just a nightmare. I feel sorry for my wife. Um, So, yeah, he's saying that our purpose is to be conformed to the image of his son, right? And he will never, this is, this, ah, I love this fact. This fact is so beautiful to me. God will never quit on conforming us to the image of his son. He will never stop doing that. He has been planning this since the beginning for us to become who we were meant to be. And so far in this passage, he has told us about ourselves. He's told us that those who love God are intimately known by the Father and predestined to be shaped and molded into the image of Jesus. This is who Paul, so far in this passage, is saying that you and I are. That we are intimately known, predestined to be molded into the image of Jesus. But what else are we? Verse 30 lays that out for us. And those whom he predestined, that's us, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. All right. I can't not talk about the word predestination, right? I have to. I understand that. Predestination. This is a sticky subject. It brings up questions like, does God cause directly all the events of the world, good and evil, to happen? Does God make evil things happen? This is a question that predestination brings up. Or does God simply have foreknowledge of all the events surrounding the world? These are, there are very smart, good, God-loving people in this room that believe both of those things separately. There are people that believe a mixture of those things. There are people that would be willing to argue with you for a long time that one of those or the other is absolutely true. And those are all great, wonderful people. There are good, God-loving people on both and all the sides of this word predestination. You want my opinion? Here it is. While we are stuck in this flesh stuff, under these little brains full of empty space, we will never be able to fully grasp the depths of our creator. And if we could, he wouldn't be much of a God, right? If I can wrap my mind around all the intentions and plans and purposes of my God, then he's just about as smart as I am. And that would be awful. We can't figure this out. I I can't figure this out. And when we get stuck in a passage like this on the things within that passage that aren't super essential, how we view predestination simply doesn't change how much God loves you, how eternal he is, and how justified and glorified you are. When we allow division to creep in because of our thoughts on these issues, we have kind of lost the point 
of what this passage is trying to tell us, which is, so far, as far as I can tell, that our God loves us so much that he filled us with his spirit, who because of his intimate connection to the Father fills in the gaps of our prayers in ways none of us can understand. He twists our evil choices and selfish decisions to work for our benefit and to fulfill his purpose of conforming us into the beautiful, perfect image of his son, Jesus. And as if that wasn't enough, he also justifies us through the blood of the Son, erases our sin, washes us clean. As he says in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And lastly, because of all these things that he has done for us, we are also glorified. It's a weird word. You were here last week, Steve talked about it a little bit. I want to get into that. First, I want to say this. I think we think too much about our birth as the beginning and death as the end and life as what's in between. I think we've allowed our minds to be conformed to that idea. That birth is the beginning, death is the end, and life is what exists in between. I was just having a conversation with my mother-in-law the other night about this very issue. She's had a close family relative of hers pass in the last couple weeks, and it's just, she's wondering things. She's grown up a believer. She knows Jesus, but she still questions, as we all do. And I got to have this beautiful conversation with her where she's asking me things like, do you really believe that there's more after our life is over? I mean, do you really believe that? And I love that question because it's a scary question to ask because in that question, you're admitting that you aren't sure of your eternality, right? You're admitting that you're not completely positive, that all these things the Bible has taught us, all these things that preachers have told us are true. And that's a dangerous thing to admit. And so I loved that conversation because we got to talk and we got to dream about what it truly is like when we leave this place, when our good friend Shakespeare says we have shuffled off this mortal coil. I'm sorry, I'm an English teacher. I can't help it. And we got to decide that we will be a glorified being for so much longer than whatever this is that we are now. We will be glorified so much longer than this short existence that we call life or humans, whatever you want to call it. And if I believe that, if I truly oriented my mind around that idea, I would live differently right now. And see, the Spirit helps us live into that because we can't see it. You know, Steve last week talked about glorified as this idea of being weighty, solid, full, right? And I heard him say that, and he quoted one of my favorite books, that Great Divorce, wonderful book, not about divorce. Always thought it was about divorce. Not about divorce at all. It's about the separation between those who live in hell and those who live in heaven, right? The great divorce, the chasm between them, right? And it's, if you weren't here last week, I'm going to basically do what he did and tell you quickly what it is. People from hell take a bus trip to heaven, right? As they do. And then they get out there, and I want to focus on this. He talked about this, but I'm just going to copy him. You know, they step out into the, the world in heaven, and the grass is too sharp for them to step on, right? Everything is just too solid, and they're too light to exist in that plane, and it's very difficult to walk because everything is so pointy and sharp and solid. They cannot push the blades of grass down. And that's where we get this idea that being glorified is about being weighty and solid and 
filled, right? And then I started to think about how I've been told before that most of us are empty space. Most of us is empty space. And I, before I looked it up, I was like, yeah, it's, what, it's like 60, 70% of all humans is just empty space. I looked it up, 99.9% of you is empty space. 99.9. Then I was like, well, that's just humans, right? No, that's everything. The hydrogen atom, 99.9% empty space. The entire universe, 99.9% empty space. Our world is just waiting to be filled. And so I want to put this out there. This is me trying to find an application for this. What if becoming more like Jesus is simply allowing him to fill our empty space? Our days are spent making room for the things that we want, right? We always make room in our lives for the things that we love. You know, if, if I went to my wife and I said to her, you know, marriage is cool, but it's becoming really time-consuming, you know? All the stuff that we're doing together, all these conversations, I don't know, it's just taking up a lot of my time. And it's great and all, but I think I'm going to shift my focus into some other stuff. I, I really want to devote more time to other areas, you know, hobbies, uh, other friends, just things that I like. I'm going to start shifting my time in that direction. You can't do that and remain married or at least remain in any way happily married, right? But if we're really honest with ourselves, we do this to God all the time. We'll never audibly say it, and if you do, you're braver than I, but we will absolutely cut time out that we could or should spend with our Lord and fill it with other things. Our work, our efforts need to be directed towards giving the Spirit the space within us to work. A very brilliant and, and great writer and pastor named John Mark Comer said it this way, and I apologize because this is not an easy statement. He says, if anyone does not have time to do the practices of Jesus, then they don't have time to follow Jesus. Then they don't have time to follow Jesus. You know, he says practices of Jesus. He's referring to things called spiritual disciplines, right? Richard Foster, author of Celebration of Discipline, lists these as some examples of spiritual disciplines. Meditation, prayer, fasting, study, simplicity, solitude, submission, service, confession, worship, guidance, and celebration. These are beautiful things, and they build us up to being more capable of participating with the work the Holy Spirit wants me to do. It attunes me more closely to the Holy Spirit. Spiritual disciplines do not actually bear fruit in our lives. That is not their goal. Spiritual disciplines themselves, the act of praying and studying and all these things, will not produce fruit in our lives. They just create space for God to work. I don't know if any of you have ever been grape farmers, but one of the interesting things about grapes is when they grow in the wild, they're awful. They're bad. And they hardly produce anything. Because they land on the ground, they don't grow up nice and tall, the grapes get spoiled and ruined, and they just don't have the space to really bear the kind of fruit that they're capable of. So brilliant farmers decided, why don't I build them a trellis? 
And they put a piece of wood in the ground and they connected branches and sticks and wires that led across so that that grapevine has the ability to swirl up and spread out and produce hundreds of times more fruit than if they were just left on the ground. And what these brilliant men are saying is that spiritual disciplines are like building up that trellis situation in your life, building up the capability for God to bear fruit where before there was none. Richard Foster again says, a farmer is helpless to grow grain. All he can do is provide the right conditions for the growing of grain. He cultivates the ground, he plants the seed, he waters the plants, and then the natural forces of the earth take over and up comes the grain. This is the way it is with the spiritual disciplines. They are a way of sowing to the spirit. By themselves, the spiritual disciplines can do nothing. They can only get us to the place where something can be done. So my last quote, I promise. Augustine, Bishop of Hippo hundreds of years ago, said, Without God, you can't. Without you, God won't. Without you, God won't. Creating space in our lives for God to work is the job of the believer. That is our role. That is what we do. That is how we cultivate the soil. We mark out time because it's important to spend it with him, to grow closer to him, to study his word, to pray even though we don't know exactly what to pray for, to stop what we're doing and say, you are important, I need you in my life. And that process of glorification continues and we are filled and we are filled and we are filled. And by the end of it, when we are truly glorified in his presence, we are so weighty, so full of him that there is no longer empty space within us. We create space for God by being with God. We make time for the things we love. So let this question ring around in your heart and mind today. How can I make space for the Holy Spirit to do the work of creating me into the image of Jesus? Let me pray. God, you are good. You are loving. You are all-knowing. And your plans are far greater than our plans. Your knowledge of who we are is so deep that there is nothing about us that you don't fully grasp and understand. And Lord, I ask that for those of us here in this room, those of us who are called according to your purpose, that you would fill us more, take over that empty space in our lives, and let us be glorified as we walk on this earth, looking for ways to show honor and love to you and the world around us. God, for those of us who are curious and doubting and full of questions, I ask that you draw those questions out, that we might bring them to a friend and a loved one and just say, I don't understand. God, help me with this. God, I don't understand. Let us not be afraid of that phrase, I'm just not sure. God, I pray all of this so that we might be conformed to the image of your beautiful and wonderful son, the savior of all of us, Jesus. 
It's in your name we pray.